Hey everybody, it's Bill. If you didn't notice last week, we didn't have an episode, but we do this week. Uh, we're kind of just picking up where we left off. We just did not have time to kind of record an episode last week, so we just kind of pushed it back a week. But we are back with regularly scheduled weekly episodes. And in case you want to see, see something new in place of an episode last week, I released a video essay on the Fast and Furious movies in honor of F9 coming out. So I, it's very different than the movies we usually talk about on the podcast, but it's like a 20-minute video essay. Uh, if you want to check it out, it's on the channel. But yeah, uh, here's the episode on Fight Club. Enjoy. <laughs> Everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wrinkled Rabbit Podcast. As always, I'm Bill Borowski. I'm Edward Rebel. I'm Jason Snyder. And I'm Drew Erler. And this week, we are talking about a film bro movie. It's Fight Club. And it's a Jason pick. So Jason, why don't you introduce us to David Fincher, Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, Helen Barn Carter, a bunch of other cool people who pop up, and Nightclub. Or not Nightclub, Fight Club. Well, first, I'd like to get six degrees of separation out of the way. Last week, we watched A Face in the Crowd, starring Andy Griffith in his film debut. Uh, he later went on to get a show named after him, uh, titled The Andy Griffith Show, which he's probably most famous for. He starred alongside the very famous Don Knotts, uh, who was also a guest star a couple times on the new Scooby-Doo movies. Uh, Scooby-Doo is known to have many, many voice actors join them, uh, and even just famous personalities, one of which is Steve Buscemi. Steve Buscemi starred in Reservoir Dogs by Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino also wrote and directed a recent film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, featuring... Our also featured actor in today's pick, Brad Pitt. Well done. I figured Tarantino would kind of be <laughs> it would be incorporated somehow, just because Andy Griffith's old school. Quinn Tarantino likes that old school stuff, so it makes yeah. sense. But Jason, you picked Fight Club. I what? Did. If, what if I've never seen Fight Club? Why? 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 Why did you pick it? Well, what's it? What's it about this movie that enticed you so much? Well, the first time I saw this movie, I was like blown away by it it was like middle school i think and i hadn't really gotten into film yet but this was one of the movies i watched like as i was like whoa movies they can do so much and of course this fits into that kind of realization because there's a lot of heavy-handedness because i think it's it's just a very layered movie there's a very obvious surface level and then you can go maybe a layer deeper and find some metaphors. Um, but then you have to really uh, sort to, sort of start to push things aside to get to the thematic levels. Uh, and the things that I think David Fincher uh, and everyone else in the cast and crew were probably thinking about while making it. Because uh, I think it's enjoyable on, on many different levels. It's 
it's a comedy, it's a drama, it's a thriller. There's a little bit of philosophy going on in there. And it's also kind of a romance, or like a really fucked up, odd romance. But I think that this movie gets a lot of hate and a lot of love, both for wrong reasons sometimes. Uh, but I think it's a good movie to discuss because uh, I don't think I've ever actually heard any of your true opinions of the movie. It's always kind of a you throw the name out, you take a few jabs at it, and then we move on. I, I feel like I've never actually sat down and talked with anybody about this movie. It's because it's forbidden. Yeah, it's forbidden. <laughs> you don't talk about it. We're breaking the first and second rule. Um, but yeah. I, like you, saw it at a, like the ripe young age of like thirteen or something, and I was, I, I was like, oh my god, this movie's so good, and I like never saw it again. I it was always really good, and it was in the back of my head like, oh, this movie's like awesome, but I didn't watch it again until this past year, when Mank was coming out, and I'm a huge fan of David Fincher. I like the social networks. One of my favorite movies. Seven is absolutely fantastic. Zodiac is fucking phenomenal. Gone girls. Amazing. Like I, I love his movies. And when Mank was coming out, I decided to kind of go back and revisit his work. And I realized I was like, Oh shit. I I've only seen fight club once. And that kind of shocked me. Cause I own, I own it on Blu-ray and I was like, I bought this years ago and I haven't watched it since. And I, I watched it and I was like, yep, really good. Like, it's just super sad that people take it the wrong way. It's kind of like, it's similar to like w movies like Wolf of Wall Street and Scarface and just, you know, typical film bro movies where The Dark Knight, where they're just kind of taken and they're blown out of proportion and they're just kind of, there's this very toxic fan base that almost kind of ruins the movie and you feel kind of dirty saying, admitting that you enjoy it. It kind of reminds me, the best kind of parallel I can really give is like Rick and Morty. I love Rick and Morty, but you have to be careful of who you say that you love Rick and Morty around because there are certain types of people who kind of ruin the enjoyment of Rick and Morty and kind of make it this tainted kind of thing. And watching it again, I... Uh, Watched half of it with a commentary with Fincher, Pitt, Ed Norton, and Helen Bonham Carter. And then I just kind of got sucked into the movie. I was like, I, I just I just need to watch this again for the podcast. I like the Blu-ray I have has like five different commentaries that I definitely want to check out. Holy shit. <laughs> uh, I was planning on trying to watch this earlier, but I just I didn't have to, I, I did not have time. And even getting the little glimpse uh, or like taste of the commentary with all those people is was really insightful and really cool just to hear the process of them making it and them talking super casually about this movie that's now just gone on to be this pretty much a classic at this point. It's like a definitive classic. Yeah, it kind of pushed its way out of cult status. Yeah, yeah, it's gone it's gone past cult classic at this point, I feel like. And yeah, I mean it's Fight Club. It's Fincher. Even if you don't like a Fincher movie, it's going to be well made, well thought out, well executed. The craftsmanship's going to be impeccable. And yeah, I mean, it's Fight Club. It's really fucking good. I had some kind of a similar experience to Billy where I never talked about the movie because it was one of those movies where I watched it so young that I couldn't have an opinion on it. 
or I realized, you know, at this point, I'm probably going to think about the movie differently. So there's no use in me talking about it. But after watching it, after watching it this time around, I like, absolutely. It's really well made. Um, It's absolutely reached classic status. It's a shame that it has the reputation that it does, but I don't think it's a movie that a culture ruined so much as it is a movie that the internet ruined by bringing a dispersed group of people together. You know, the internet's infamous for um, making subcultures a lot stronger than they ever needed to be. And so the reputation, because the reputation that it's gotten came mostly from memes and people talking about those people more than you ever interacting with those people. I've met maybe one person in my whole experience who really has fit that that category they all exist on the internet for me yeah no, i agree but the and then that's the problem though is that then you you know you have to qualify every single statement with fight club which i, I really liked it but not in that way <laughs> like that kind of thing um and i just you know to cut through the chase i literally had the same experience that you uh billy and drew had um, where it's like saw it like freshman year of high school. I actually, it didn't really hit me uh, all that well back then. And I think it's mostly cause I had it spoiled for me already. Um, in terms of the twist, like I had seen some article about how, oh, that you can see the twist coming. If you look at the payphone. it says no incoming calls. And then I was like, well, that's the movie. And then I watched it and I was like, well, I already knew what was happening. And you know, at that point wasn't really looking for much else out of it. Um, but as you said, Jason, there's a, you know certainly a lot to go off of, and we talked about this uh, you know similar topic a few weeks ago. Uh, the idea where you know how how much blame do you have to put on the director and the filmmakers um, when an audience just completely misinterprets what a movie is going for? And after having rewatched this now, after you know basically for the basically for the first time because I didn't you know really have much of a memory watching it the first time. Uh, those people are idiots. You know, like there's really, I, like, I don't understand how you can. Would you say this. that well, there's that you're smart and you're and they're dumb? Yeah, I guess so. Which we'll get to yeah. later. Yeah, but like, how I I was genuinely baffled watching the second half of this movie, and like, you're really only going to take away like what the first half was showing you. I don't, I don't know. So. I think it's a classic example of you're trying to make a movie about the fact that people get easily carried away by what's shown in the media, which is very polished and not realistic. Well, at the same – and you're trying to deliver that message through a highly polished media yeah. piece. And so like I don't know what you expected by giving the dumb people – it's hard to find an analogy, but I think you guys understand what I mean. It's like you're trying to give them a message through the thing that you're already saying through the the film that they're not going to understand. And then you're trying and then you're blaming them for not understanding it. Yeah, I do agree that it's hard to find an analogy for that, but I know I know what you mean for sure. You know, just as I was watching it, it you know, I was trying to think like, well, like what exactly what is like the disconnect here? What like makes people trip up with this kind of thing? And it seems like what people, you know, what I would assume people do is they just stop at the, like, observation that a character makes or, like, what, you know, like the, 
because obviously the you know character makes an observation and then there's uh what they do after that um as like their own conclusion to it or their remedy or whatever and so you can have a character like brad pitt's character in this that like may identify some things or just point out some things out there that you can say oh yeah like that's a good observation or i relate to that in some way um, and then you basically just get caught up in the rest of it because you're along for the ride after they make something that you believe is a good point. And it also helps that Tyler Durden is such a charismatic character. So yeah. when you have people who are easily susceptible to, I guess, charismatic people who make points that they agree with, you don't really, when you're like, yeah, I agree with that. You, you get in that kind of glass box of circular thinking of you're you don't want to think beyond that because they're already agreeing with you even if the movie itself is not actually agreeing with the statements some of these characters are making well and the the casting of brad pitt is really central to the message that the film's trying to give the audience and there's a there's a scene that i think perfectly encapsulates the the irony that the audience is supposed to pick up on, um, but that a lot don't and thus creates the whole issue is there's in the scene with Edward Norton and Brad Pitt at the bar when right before they first, they have the first fight club meeting with just the two of them, Brad Pitt's talking about like, Oh, you're a slave to your objects. Oh, you lost everything in apartment in your apartment, but you were defining yourself by all your things. He's giving the audience through Edward Norton this anti-consumerist message, but he's dressed really well. You know, he's smoking cigarettes. Later on, they're talking about how people work out in order to look like what Calvin Klein is telling them to look like, and that's a problem. But meanwhile, Brad Pitt already looks like that so it's easy for him to say all those things when he is embodying a brand he's basically a walking advertisement for edward norton and that's the whole point but like i said before people are being advertised to and so your whole message is advertising is too strong people get easily tricked by advertising but you're trying to tell them that through what's essentially a commercial so, like, again, what did you expect to happen? Did you expect them to understand? <laughs> like, which is what makes this movie so fascinating. Um, at the same time, so problematic. But the reasons why it's problematic makes it really worth discussing. Yeah, I almost, I, I'm trying to imagine if, like, uh, a face in the crowd had somehow... Because, you know, it makes it pretty clear that Lonesome Roads is not a figure that you should be, uh, you know, in love with or anything like that. And it manage it almost makes that. Uh, I mean, I guess you know, like you said, subcultures uh, really only emerged uh, with the dawn of the internet, and it, you know, something like this definitely would not have happened uh, with a movie that came out in 1957. But uh, just trying to like tie together the idea that, like, <laughs> you know, as you were saying, you're trying to make something uh, that is speaking out against an idea, or yeah, an idea, but you're also like trying to push that idea and convey that through your movie so like i'm trying i'm just trying to imagine like a face in the crowd creating like a demagogue character that was so like charismatic that uh like he basically tricked the audience and that's kind of you know 
that's basically what this movie is doing, except in terms of what you were saying with Brad Pitt um, being a charismatic figure. And like the face in the a face in the crowds, less like it's easy for the audience to see through because you're given, you know, the peek behind the curtain, and you get to see him, you know, being two faced. When Tyler Durden, because he's um, a figment of the narrator's imagination, he completely embodies what he's he's talking about. He's not misleading anyone. It's not like he's, you know, manipulating people. He's just acting out this subconscious desire that the narrator has. This fantasy. Exactly. I mean, he even says it himself. He's everything he, uh, the narrator wants to be. Like he even he's like I dress how you want to dress I fuck how you like to, how you want to fuck that whole kind of monologue in the hotel room when we talk about kind of like problematic I I feel like as filmmaker as a filmmaker you shouldn't try and limit yourself of like oh maybe this certain subset of the audience won't understand it so I have to kind of back down my choices of how to kind of go about making this just because oh some people won't understand it as a filmmaker you're trying to tell your story and i think it would be a problem if you're like oh what if people perceive this the wrong way then this movie wouldn't be nearly as effective as it is and fincher's definitely not one of those filmmakers where it's like well, what if they misunderstand this? Well, again, I said, you know, this movie was ruined by the internet. So, like, no, there's there's no blame on Fincher because he couldn't have foreseen the way the internet picked up this movie and ran with it or brought people who misunderstood this movie who were originally dispersed together. You can't be blamed for the way something that you made is used in the future if the means for that use hasn't even blown up yet or become what it was to be yet. It's just now it's a lot harder for filmmakers, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It, it might just be because I come from that filmmaker perspective, but the last thing I want to do or experience is people saying, Oh, you need to not do this because people might not understand it. And it's like, well, that's, I'm trying to make art to do or try and make this point, And that's the whole point of using this medium that I'm commentating on. Like I always think of like Wolf of Wall Street, which is sort of pl- problematic because they did use really like blackmailed money to finance the movie. So what? Like, that, that whole thing is, a <laughs> I didn't know that cobweb <laughs> uh, spider web of its own. It's a really interesting story that there was like a Saudi businessman or something or uh, who invested money, who was into a lot of like, the criminal activities and Leonardo DiCaprio used that money to finance it. That's why the movie has the budget it has. Putting that aside, if we look through it at like if we take Wolf of Wall Street from an example, from taking away the like how it they got the money to make the movie from the pure filmmaking capabilities or just kind of process, they use the idea of at excess 
to show why excess is bad. They show and the the characters at their most vulgar and stuff to show that it's not a and uh, it's not a good thing. You don't have that one person going like, "Ha, look at these idiots!" Because they make the they show how absurd these things are and how much they affected people, and that's what makes it effective. Then you have the problem of people latching it on, being like, "Dude, I want to be Jordan Belfort when I grow up. I'm gonna be a business major now." That's a problem, but you shouldn't limit. It, like Martin Scorsese shouldn't have like sat down and be, been like, oh, I shouldn't do this because you'll have business majors who didn't understand the movie. And I just think that The Wolf of Wall Street is like the modern kind of example of Fight Club where we we kind of saw another subset kind of grow where it's become like this. It's, it's another project that analyzes toxic masculinity. If we put the themes down to its most basic kind of core and people fundamentally like taking it the wrong way and making it their personality for the wrong reasons. Well, and then I think uh, an alternative argument or an alternative way to frame the argument instead of like, you need to change the way that you talk about toxic masculinity An alternative argument. And I think a stronger argument is like, do we really need more movies about that? Like, is it, is it really effective or changing anything to make more movies about toxic masculinity bad instead of giving voice to different perspectives? Maybe that's the solution instead of presenting people with images of or representations of toxic masculinity and hoping that they'll get it. And <laughs> like, that's also a thing that is important. Hopefully, I mean, we're slowly kind of getting to that point where we're you're able to get more perspectives and voices in the conversation. I don't want to say we should stop telling these stories because you never know how like effective or important a story can be. But I also strongly agree that it's important to kind of have more voices and not just have the market kind of be, or just landscape be saturated with uh, look at what the, what, what the don't do this. <laughs> kind of like toxic masculinity analyzation kind of thing if if you if that makes any sense yeah no that makes sense so jason what's that what's your unifying theory or your big your big read yeah you teased <laughs> us last week by saying you have something that no one else has talked about so enlighten us no i didn't yeah you did you said you said you've never seen anyone talk about it yeah, I did lie to you, but I do have something that I think <laughs> he lied is, to uh, what the hell? is an interesting thing to talk about in the movie, because I haven't, I don't think I've heard anyone, like, really acknowledge it. They kind of, like, float it through the things that they talk about, but I think part of the reason that this movie is so persuasive over so many people, I guess a better word is influential, um... I think is because the first half you get all the frustration and all the anger that people build up living in today's society. I think that this movie came at a pivotal point where the role of a man in society was washed away and was starting to be rewritten. Um, because originally we had those gender-defining roles Man does this, woman does this. And then right around the turn of the century, these things started to dissolve. And I'm sure for people, for a lot of people who 
kind of ingrained in themselves growing up, this idea that I need to grow up, I need to gather, I need to collect things, I need to take care of a wife, I need to provide. When they realized that they didn't have to do all that, when the blinders were kind of taken off and they were put in the world that they're just like a, a pawn doing something over and over again, uh, then they get frustrated. Uh, and I also think that they bring up the fact that both the characters, um, I'll call him Jack, the narrator, uh, and Tyler, they neither of them have parents, or at least don't have a father. And I think that the world and the situ the position of a, a man or woman or anybody in today's world is kind of ambiguous. It's very difficult to know one's place. And because of that, because of the rapid pace of change, there's nobody ahead of us to guide us and to kind of be a guru in life and say, this is a nice way to gain your footing and live life. We're all just kind of chaotically thrown in this rapidly evolving mess. And that frustration is very evident in the beginning of the movie. Where it goes wrong is a, they shoot it off into this former idea of masculinity, where it's you need to fight, you need to get violent and physical. And through that, you get contact, you get human contact, but it's not the, the satisfying expression or connection that people need to thrive in the world. Uh, so I think that's where it becomes problematic when people don't realize that they shot off in that sort of satirical uh, direction and they they stick with that and they're fully invested in that. That's where it goes wrong. But the idea that we don't have anybody, we don't have a guide, I think that's an important message to to bring to the forefront in the beginning of the movie and carry throughout. What do you have to say about the scene where Tyler's talking about how his dad essentially gave him terrible advice and was like, his dad told him to go to college, so he went to college. His dad told him after college to get a job, so he got a job. And then what's next? He's got to yeah, get married. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's getting him nowhere. Like, the, the landscape of our society is going through a rapid evolution. Uh, I think every decade, things are moving quicker and things are changing a lot quicker. I'd imagine that like in the 1400s, if you were to live 50 years, you'd kind of live in the same world scene. Not much would change around you. You'd kind of be in the same situation. But now we know, we see the, wor we see the world changing. We, we hear about everything going on around us. And we're still told to follow the same path and sit and do what we're doing, follow the assembly line. We don't have someone to kind of ask us what yeah. we want to do and explore explore the world a little bit more. We're kind of just following the same path. No, I was going to say what kind of adds to that, why things have kind of, especially over the past few years, like past 20 years, pretty much since like 1999, I think another movie that came out the same year that I think is a really good companion piece is The Matrix. Because both kind of touch on similar themes of kind of this 
circular nature of our society and kind of like how we're almost kind of all put on the same path and us trying to break out of that path. And one of the big reasons why everything's kind of changing is technology is a big reason why as technology is rapidly developing and getting more and more science fiction esque where science fiction is almost becoming reality. That helps a lot or we're, we're also getting more isolated and connected at the same time while hearing multiple voices. We're also still kind of like becoming more and more reliant on our phones and laptops, all that kind of stuff. And that's, I just think that's a major factor of why things are kind of progressing the way they are. Because now we can hear these kind of different perspectives, like as you mentioned in the 1400s, like we, we, people had their like small community, they didn't really go outside it, and they didn't really know about the world beyond. Now we're really kind of getting the sense where like everything's documented, everything's shared instantaneously. So now there's not really anywhere to hide or anywhere to really the the belief that there's one set path has increasingly become kind of like false and people are kind of showing more people that there are like other ways to do things and both the matrix and fight club kind of touch on that we're like hey here's different ways to kind of go about life one in a more positive way with the matrix kind of like saving the world, breaking free from technology and all that kind of stuff. And fight club kind of like the very toxic kind of downfall and like that kind of thing. But I, I, I just wanted to kind of point that out. I, I'm, I feel like I've been kind of sputtering and uh, gabbing for the past few minutes, yeah. but I hope it, some it's of almost like a, like a reversal, like, like out of fear, out of the, out of not knowing there's, this fallback onto yeah. like, primal, pulpy, angry, gross, sweaty, bloody violence. <laughs> yeah. So let me see if I'm getting this if I'm getting this straight, Jason. So essentially what you're saying is that the movie presents this human like universal generational um issue with being helpless the world changing quicker than the people who are supposed to guide us can understand it and so the old rules don't work anymore but the new rules haven't been written yet and then it pairs it with this image of toxic masculinity and then creates a satire by allowing the characters to wrongly blend the two and think that the masculinity and these primal urges, which have no place in the current society and are damaging, will set them free. But I think you can also bring in the fact that, because I think Marla's relationship is super important uh, in contrasting what's going on with Tyler. Because while you have all that that toxic relationship between two men going on, which you could also argue is somewhat romantic. You have this female romantic figure who's like caught between the two, but off screen the whole time as well. And I, it's interesting to see that struggle in, in the narrator where it's, it's almost like Tyler surfaced as soon as 
he realized he was attracted to this woman who was so similar to him. Almost like I had found I found a soulmate. I can embrace a feminine side of me. And then boom, Tyler's there. And he goes full masculine ape shit. Almost again, like like a fear mechanism where he he's he's just afraid of embracing something softer within him. What happened when he tried to call uh, Marla again? I forget because he didn't initially try to call Tyler, right? Didn't he try to call Marla at first? Oh, didn't he just hang up? Are you talking about after his apartment? Yeah. Yeah, he calls Marla first and then he calls what? Tyler. Well, Marla doesn't answer. I thought Marla did answer, but he hung up immediately. Oh no, she does answer, and then he's kind of like breathing, and she's like, "I hear you breathing," and then he hangs. Which kind of adds to your point, Jason, in terms of like you know he's just turning to this Tyler as like a suppression uh, mechanism, and ultimately that's what you see out of a lot of you know a lot of these people, especially Bob. Um, but I'm sure he stopped going to those group therapies after he started going to Fight Club. But uh, you know, wasn't necessarily. Yeah, he even mentions like when uh the narrator or jack kind of walks out of the laundromat or whatever he runs into bob and he's like oh you still going to those meetings he's like no i got something better but but i can't talk about it (laughs) they have that whole like cute interaction (laughs) but i have a question for you i'm looking right now i read your mind ah okay 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 who who was meatloaf in this movie oh uh robert paulson because okay. ah, when i first saw the opening Bob. credits i was like i need to pay attention for that i didn't know meatloaf was in this movie and then it completely slipped my mind but that's <laughs> totally yeah that's hilarious there's a story i really like about the i think it was the can premiere of this movie brad pitt and edward norton went together and they smoked a joint before going into the theater and they got in and sat down to watch Fight Club, their movie. And uh, like throughout the first hour, hour and a half, or like half hour to an hour, they're like laughing their asses off. Like they're having the time of their lives. They think all the jokes are hilarious. They think it's the funniest movie they've ever made. And no one else in the theater is laughing. <laughs> Everyone else is just <laughs> dead silent. Um <laughs> And then they finally realized that, like, one of the runners of the festival was sitting, like, right in front of them. I, I think he got up and left after an hour of the movie. He didn't even finish it. <laughs> he just got up and left. Imagine being in a theater watching a movie and you just have these annoying assholes in the back just cackling and then you (laughs) walk down and it's fucking edward norton and brad pitt whoever's in the movie you're like would you shut up i'm trying to watch la la land and it's emma stone and ryan gosling (laughs) um i have another story about um the filmmakers experience like at the time the movie came out so David Fincher, like he made the movie, it was released, it was a bomb, whatever. And like later on, after it started to gain some traction um, and get some popularity, he like picked up his sister from school, not his sister, his daughter. He picked up his daughter from school and his daughter was like, I want you to meet 
like Timmy or whatever. And she's like, she's like, he's like a friend that I just made. And then he's like, okay, why do you want me to meet Timmy? And then she was like, well, I was talking to him. He said that Fight Club is his favorite movie. So I wanted to meet you. And then um, he like stopped her and he was like, listen, I don't want you to ever talk to Timmy again. I don't want you to associate with Timmy. He's bad news, this Timmy. And he knew he based that off of the fact that he liked his yeah. movie, which I think is that's hilarious. <laughs> well, relatively the funny complex. thing is, um, unlike anywhere that you read about, like perceived demographics for this movie, David Fincher himself, I think, even said that it's made for thirty-year-olds or people in their thirties that are like experiencing the weight of living in a capitalist society blah 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 um and frustrated people like that so i imagine that he could pretty obviously (laughs) say or pretty confidently say that any high schooler that's that comes out of this and says it's their favorite movie of all time and sticks by that is potentially problematic just because it's not something that they could fully grasp, I don't think, from like a high school experience level. Well, one thing that I was going to say is I don't know if it's it's kind of a strange coincidence that Billy, Edward, and me all had the experience that we watched it at a young age um, and then sort of like formed an opinion about it but forgot about it. I I do think that the film is designed for older people with more critical thinking skills. And part of the problem may be that boys who aren't equipped to deal with what they see or process what they see, see it and then get essentially poisoned by it. Like their brains get <laughs> holes in it. And then they get I think it's a good sign we weren't poisoned by it. At least I knew when I first saw it, I was like, I knew it was something I would return to when I was older because I definitely felt like there was some kind of boundary or like a line where I was like, okay, I'm not understanding all of this, but I can see that it's very well made. And I just kind of, I remember liking it from like, oh, this is like, it was when I was starting to like realize like actual filmmaking process. And I was like, oh, this is really well made. And then when I started thinking, I was like, this can't be like, I don't know. It, I was. I definitely didn't understand what specifically it was going for, but I could understand that it was well made. And when you kind of say that this was made for people in their thirties or just people living older audiences living in a capitalistic society now, as a older man living in a capitalist society and dealing with all that shit, it uh, it rings very true now. <laughs> yeah, the way that you described yourself as an older man is very funny. I'm 60 years old. Um, yeah, well, how so how old were you when you first watched it? I was like 13, 12 or something ridiculous okay. like that. Yeah, so there's like, I think there's like uh, a golden age or age range where it's the most dangerous for a boy to be exposed for this movie to this movie high school yeah like sophomore junior year 15 14 15 16 years old because like at least for me that's when like everything that i was consuming whether it be movies books 
like I was looking for answers straight up. Like yeah. I wanted someone to tell me what was up, like what things meant, how that. to make sense of things. And <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, you, you get that. It's packaged very well, very convincingly. And unfortunately, you need certain tools and skills in order to unpack that and understand it that 15, 16 year olds don't lack, but at the same, or that don't have, but at the same time, like most people don't think about like, okay, so Tyler's giving me this message, but what does Tyler do? What does he look like? He makes he, soap. <laughs> yeah, it's like he makes soap. Well, that's not no, really I'm a part sorry. of I don't know. <laughs> That's not really a part of what I'm trying to say. I think about like the things that he has, how clean that he is, how attractive he is. Like in order to look like Tyler, to feel like Tyler, you need to spend exorbitant amounts of money if you're not a figment of a person's imagination. That's what makes him a brand and an advertisement because, you know, advertisements are the promise of the product without the burden of actually buying it without the environmental impact of it being manufactured and shipped to your location. Like it's just the reality of having existed alongside this product within the narrow like scope of what this product is intended for and what it represents. There's no life outside the product. And so you need to have that kind of understanding in order to understand like Tyler's full of shit if he's saying all this stuff or there's something more behind you know tyler as uh a figure in the film which there is but you know you're not going to get any of that if you're just again carried away by the advertisement that he is i have a letterbox review also so now it's that time for the segment we like to call listen you little wiseacre i'm smart you're dumb i'm big you're little i'm right you're wrong and there's nothing you can do about it. Ends the segment where we pick a letterbox review, we read it. It usually gives us the flip side, the more negative side of the perspective we are talking about. We read it and we kind of give our counterpoints and kind of make an argument of why they should check it out again or at least give it another shot. So, Drew, why don't you read this week's review? Okay. This person uh, has four favorite movies. Their four favorite movies are Raw, the French horror film. Uh, Sorry to Bother You. Good movie. Portrait of Good a Lady movie. on Fire. And Tron Legacy. One of these things is not like the others. Um, they gave Fight Club f- one and a half stars. And they said this about it. Nauseating and dumb. Americans are trapped in their identity policed brains are too trapped in their identity policed brains to realize that their suffering has nothing to do with their identity, but with the institution that identified them. And also that America isn't the only place that exists. I wonder, are they critiquing then the, the watchers, like the viewers of the movie more so than the film? Maybe they, they just dislike the, over glorification of searching for identity because there are a lot of american movies that just have characters floundering in existentialism and that's kind of what this movie is 
uh, in a sense. It's very American the way that the people in the film, you know, the narrator and Tyler um, approach finding a solution to the uh, the issue of American identity. They essentially, you know, say, I'm going to I'm going to swear off my allegiance to brands and to consumer culture by building an all encompassing brand and calling it, you know, a mindset. There's a big industry in America of self-improvement seminars, books, audiobooks, retreats where the basic idea is like I hate my current identity or I identify problems so I'm going to purchase a new one. And it's sort of a similar idea, except instead of purchasing it with money, they're purchasing it with blind allegiance and proto-fascism, which is also pretty American. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess if if they're attacking the the application of the the movie's philosophy, like the fact that they made a Fight Club, uh, and like you said, turned it into this saving brand um they're right but also wrong because it seems to me that they're glossing over the fact that it is supposed to be satirical that it's pointing out the absurdity of the way that americans deal with problems so they can be upset at at the way that americans deal with problems but that's the the fact that they realized that that's what the movie was trying to do and still didn't really like it. I don't know how to help them. <laughs> I agree with that. I think we'd I think we would need more in order to understand what they mean by Americans. When they say Americans, are they referring to the filmmakers as Americans? Are they referring to the Americans who watched it? Um, Fight Club and plenty of other movies. I think is really interesting to get a non-American perspective on. I remember um, when I worked at that summer camp, I would like talk about all these movies that I loved to one of my friends at the summer camp who was from Scotland. And then I'd like describe it. And then I'd be like, it's a pretty American movie. So I don't know if you would like understand everything that like I get out of it. And I remember I showed him Easy Rider when he came to visit me here and he was like, yeah, that is a very American movie. Like it has absolutely nothing to do with my experience and my relationship to my country. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of true. Cause most like films that we watch that are made in America or pose themselves against America are, you know, you're staking your identity either off of like with or in contrast to this country you know you take you take someone out of the country or you show the film to someone who's not from the country and that context that's supposed to be built in is gone and the structure collapses and fight club might very well suffer from that i wonder if it would be easily more laughable because of that like if if American culture just comes or American like ideologies come across as just so foolish and like uh, 
transparently dumb sometimes. Well, the whole thing is like America is absolutely obsessed with itself. Like even yeah. when you're making an argument against American culture, you never stop talking about America. Yeah. <laughs> and so like I think that's what people that's what this person like the argument that they're making is is like they're trying to look for solutions within the structure that's at the core of and thus, what built the country. The most successful movie series that we have has a main character that has America in the fucking name. What? Oh, <laughs> you're talking about <laughs> Captain America, yeah. baby. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think they just see Americans and they think, oh my god, they're like absolutely trapped like intellectually trapped <laughs> oh no that's definitely how the world perceives us that's definitely <laughs> how the world perceives us that's how i perceive us is there anything else we want to talk about or is it final thoughts time i feel like i could easily keep talking but we need to cut it at some point final thoughts time i'll go first fight club uh, it was my first introduction into the world of David Fincher. I'm pretty sure it was the first Fincher movie I saw, and it definitely sent me down the rabbit hole of his filmography. Uh, it was nice kind of revisiting it a year ago. It was definitely nice revisiting it and talking to you guys about it because I definitely have avoided talking to people about Fight Club because, one, you're not supposed to talk about it, and, two, it's just a very touchy thing to talk about because you never know who you who what kind of person you're gonna get out of when you bring this movie up but i think we've kind of established through the past hour or so that it's worth a watch even if you are afraid of that subset of fans that make the movie problematic i think it's important to still make your own opinion and even if you agree it's still problematic or just not a good movie. Yeah, Fight Club. Glad you picked it, Jason. I was a little worried when you first picked it because four white guys talking about Fight Club is a uh, not really a new thing, but I think we uh, had a really nice conversation here. Yeah. Um, I would say the movie's worth watching, but it's also everything that you think it is if you have an idea of what Fight Club is, but you've never seen it before. It belongs to a genre or, you know, a grouping that's well-charted, well-documented, well-understood of boy movies or film bro movies. And so, like I've said before, when we've talked about boy movies, they're just, they're packaged in a way that's not palatable and doesn't need to be palatable to people. And so that's like an issue with the movie, even if it's an exploration of the very things that make it unpalatable. Yeah, if you're if you're interested in the in cinema culture of the 90s going into the early 2000s, um it's definitely essential. It's it's a it's a turning point film in that era. Just uh glad glad I got to rewatch it and like be able to actually watch it. Um because it really it really was a fantastic fantastic movie. Uh and Billy, I mean you mentioned just uh David Fincher and he really is one of those directors. I feel like you can expect him to do something worthwhile every single time. And you know what you're going to get. He's very, he's got like a great consistency to him. And you can see a lot of his, uh, you know, 
style in here, especially you know with the with the edit, the editing itself was uh, very nice and unique. I liked that, um, and the narration was a good touch too, um, which you know it's one of those things that can go over poorly in any movie, um, but it really just tied this one uh, together and had to love it. Um, and yeah, no, I thought I thought we had a great discussion here too. Felt like we got great nuggets uh, from everybody, and the, the you know the film because the film itself is something that's uh, interesting to talk about, but so is the you know context around it, which is taking on like a larger than life, uh, you know, version of the film itself. So yeah, no, just all around great movie and lots to talk about. I truly love this movie. I do. I'll be honest. Uh, I'm always a little afraid to watch it again. And then as soon as I do, I'm like blown away by how, how much I didn't remember how, at how good it is. Like it's so well made. Um, but, um, oh fuck. I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, damn. I really forgot what I was going to say. Oh, well, um, I'm just, I'm just, oh, I remember. I felt that it was important for me to put the movie on the podcast, not because I think it's an important movie that needs to be, like, people need to hear other people talking about it. I don't think that's necessary at all. I mostly wanted to put this movie on the podcast because I think just like masculinity, uh, it's not something that people talk about much, and... The way that this movie presents masculinity in such a volatile way, uh, the fact that it's almost taboo to talk about, I think, makes masculinity even more taboo to talk about. Uh, and this movie has moments of like true emotionality. You look at some of the pieces early on in um, some of the interactions in the help the support groups. Like, that's real men hugging each other and crying through emotions. That's in the movie. Uh, and before it shoves it all to the side, uh, in a very ironic way, it's not trying to be prophetic or anything. But, uh, but I do think that talking about things such as this, at least to clear the air and get ideas out there and actually talk through and understand stuff is important. So I'm glad I got to do that at least a little bit with you guys. Well said, everybody, as always. And now it's time to see what we're going to be talking about next week. And that means spinning a little thing I like to call the wheel. So, uh, Drew, why don't you spinny spinny my wheelie wheelie or our wheelie okay. wheelie. Spin my Who wee can it wee. Be? It can be a guest, me, or Edward. Okay. Bill, what's it going to be? Oh, fuck yes. Okay, I was hoping it was going to be me because uh, it, we're going to have a little thing called 4th of July in a, a, in a little bit, which is also kind of a problematic thing. But I want to talk about something that's kind of 4th of July related, but is very nice and pleasant. And it makes America, it focuses on the smaller people, the stories of people. The true stories of people. We're going to be talking about David Byrne's only directorial uh, film, True Stories. Uh. It's about a little small town in Texas celebrating their 
Sestusquintennial. They're just doing a celebration, a special celebration of special Ness. It's a nice little weird movie. David Byrne and the Talking Heads are my favorite band and performer when it comes to music. And I found out they that David Byrne did a movie and Talking Heads did a soundtrack. I needed to watch it. And it was everything I hoped it would be and more. And I'm very sad he never did another movie. So watch True Stories for next week. Thank you to Ken Hell. Liam, as Hell. always, for the great intro Hell. and outro music. And we'll see you next time for John Goodman maintaining a consistent panda bear shape and David Byrne walking around in a big cowboy hat. See you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>